Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vasim Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Brendan Brown, a professor of physics and communications specialist at the University of San Francisco. He is an excellent science communicator. He has written for publications such as Slate, Smithsonian, and Scientific American, and served as deputy director at the Green Science Policy Institute and a senior writing coach for the Strictly Speaking group. Today we are going to discuss his new book, Sharing Our Science, How to Write and Speak STEM. Professor Brendan Brown is a scientist who loves writing and after seeing his colleagues struggle to find a writing guide that tackled the unique challenges of writing and speaking about scientific topics, he set out to write this thorough and practical handbook to assist STEM students, scientists, engineers, and tech workers. Brendan, thank you very much for joining me and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. That's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Let us start with this question. Uh, why, in your view, STEM students, researchers, scientists, and engineers should learn the craft of effective science communication? Why it is important? Great question. I think a lot of scientists and science students assume uh, I'm not going to be giving a lot of talks for the general public. Uh, I'm not I'm probably not going to interface with the media very much. I don't need to focus on this. However, I think uh, so many scientists I know, and I would call, I would say many, let's say more capital S scientists than myself, working at R1 universities, uh, running huge laboratories, discover that most of their working lives is actually communicating. They're writing grant proposals, uh, long, intricate, difficult contentious emails with colleagues, et cetera. Um, so that's factor one. I would say factor two is, is that studies show even um, more simply written research papers uh, that, that get a, um, a lower, uh, if you will, um, grade level reading score in the way they're written are cited much more often. Um, so it turns out that fellow scientists enjoy reading more clearly written um, papers and they enjoy attending uh, more compelling um, uh, clear talks, for example, as well. So whatever a scientist or tech worker or engineer is doing in their work, so much of it's communicating and so much of it's going to go a little better for them and a little more smoothly with better outcomes by just tuning up their communications a bit. Brendan, you say in the book that the most significant factor in improving your science communication skills was participating in an undergraduate fiction writing workshop while studying uh, physics as an undergrad student. Why did you decide uh, to take fiction writing workshops while you were studying physics? <laughs> I decided to take fiction workshops largely because my roommate, still a close friend of mine, was an English major, and uh, he's now an English professor. And he said, Brandon, I know you enjoy reading good fiction. Maybe you should take this workshop with me. Uh, and I had always enjoyed uh, messing around with creative writing, um, but it was, it was quite eye-opening. I, I worked with a fiction writer 
named um, Max Apple, who's now at um, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Uh, he's quite quite an accomplished fiction writer, and but even better, he was a wonderful teacher. I want to dig deep on this. Uh, <laughs> I want a bit more. It was just uh, your interest at that time, or did you know that in your scientific work in future, uh, the work that you intend to do in the field of uh, physics, these skills will help? Uh, what was that? I had no idea that there would be crossover. Um, and so they were completely separate parts of my brain well into graduate school. In graduate school, on one side of campus, I was pursuing my physics PhD um, and superconductivity. On another side of campus, my physics department was fine with me trundling across. As long as I got my physics work done and my lab work done, I would take the occasional graduate level fiction workshop uh, in the English department there. And this is at Oregon State University. One reason I went there is because they that university was fine um, um, with such uh, transfers back and forth. They had no problem with that as long as I was getting my primary work done. Some graduate programs said, no way, you're going to be locked in this physics building and you're going to learn to love it. <laughs> so I got to scratch both sides of my brain and I thought saw it as very separate, uh, two very separate activities, probably until I started as a young professor and I was writing grant proposals thinking, wait a minute, I could apply some fundamental principles of fiction here, which would be, if someone reads my first sentence, is there anything compelling them to read the second sentence? If someone finishes my first page, God help them, will they want to turn and, and read the second page? And so on. And I started thinking in this way and realizing so much of my scientific training was, I wouldn't say antithetical, um, but inconsistent with this audience-focused point of view. Um, wh what is the reader bringing to this? What are they interested in? Uh, how can I how can I keep them on course with me? How can I take them by the hand and guide them on this on this story as a fellow human being, versus just sort of cudgeling them with with data and logic, and assuming that they would fall in line with my point of view? This nicely brings us to my next question, Brendan. In the book, uh, you discuss tension, you discuss dramatic tension. And you suggest that uh, the authors should use dramatic tension that should make their audience care about the topic that they intend to communicate. Uh, you borrow this idea from the discipline of storytelling and fiction writing. Why dramatic tension is important in your view when we are uh, writing about science and technology? That's a great question. And it will fit some science stories better than others, but I, I would submit to you um, the same idea that keeps us, if we, if we open a column in our web browser this morning about a news story, um, what is keeping us reading all 500 words? Um, or if we're reading a great novel, I'm, I'm reading one right now I just love called uh, Demon Copperhead um, by Barbara Kingsolver, okay? And I am turning the pages because I can't wait to see what happens. Um, now, on the, on the other hand, we often start our science stories and science papers with, let me give you a historical introduction. Let me just roll out what we all agree on and what's already been established, etc. And that's fine. It meets expectations. 
but I feel like I've had some luck early on with grant proposals and thinking like, hey, let's put my central question and why it should interest a lot of people up front and keep that question in mind, maybe even tease it, maybe even use it in transitions between paragraphs and segments of my document. Um, and, and really think about having a, a sort of not not flowery, not like a, a fiction writing um, novella style at all, um, but just keeping the, the central tension of why would anyone care in mind while I write and especially while I edit. Like, oh, my God, I've gone on quite a detour here and talking about copper oxide ceramics. Where is my reader? Why do they care? <laughs> what fundamental questions do they have that I'm ignoring? So those are the kind of questions we could bring from fiction to make, say, a, a, um, a better paper, a better report. Um, even, I, even I would argue a, a better persuasive email to someone. And uh, staying with the same topic, staying with the same concept, you also suggest that uh, the way we follow uh, in narrative arc in storytelling, where there are various steps, uh, for instance, there, uh, there is a problem, there are goals, there are challenges, there is a crisis, there is a conflict, and then we get to a resolution. You encourage science uh, uh, communication community to adopt uh, some of those ideas when they are writing about science and technology? I'm really glad you asked this because I, I do distinguish between the broad concept of storytelling and tension and then these sort of um, things that don't resonate with me as much, which is this sort of uh, canonical plot line of narrative and these, these graphs you might see in an um, uh, English literature class, literary analysis. Um, here's our crisis. Here's the resolution, et cetera. I don't suggest mapping our science story so much onto this, this kind of um, plot line or structure. But however, thinking about um, one fiction writer once told me that stuck with me, said, you know, all the, all the good stories starting in the holy books onward have two things. They have some kind of main character with, with a goal, and that person runs into obstacles. And that's the sort of central... Um, tension of it. And it struck me that, wow, as scientists and technologists, we always have an ambitious goal and we always have obstacles. It could be controlling the temperature. It could be funding. It could be many, many things, but we have these, these crazy obstacles. Um, and so I, th I think our stories are, are built in with this kind of tension. And in science, we could, I like to say in the book, we can consider a character, not a human being. It, it could be a molecule. Uh, it could be a subroutine. It could, it could be many things that we could uh, map onto having a, a goal or an aim and encountering obstacles. You have uh, briefly touched upon what I'm about to ask, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll still ask the question and let us stick with this point for a minute. Uh, you say that scientists are often trying to solve a mystery uh, in a scientific problem. Uh, and, and you say that uh, that scientific work has a built-in narrative tension. You just mentioned that. Uh, I just want you to dig deep on that. Uh, first of all, you use this word mystery in a scientific problem. Uh, usually science community avoid using these type of terms, mystery. No, 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 let's not talk about mystery. 
And then the second point that I want you to further expand on is that you say that scientific work has a built-in narrative tension because we are dealing with the mystery. Yes. So one of the great sources of tension available to us in some of our stories um, is this term mystery that you mentioned. And I, I just want to say one of the earlier ones that comes more naturally if you're, let's say, a journalist uh, is the idea of, of having stakes like human health. And some of our work, if you're involved in medicine or biotechnologies, that's your tension, like, hey, I can save lives, et cetera. Okay. Now, mystery, I think, is more common and, and permeates so much of science. Let's say if we're doing black hole research or, or studying a, um, a rare salamander, the kind of what we think of as, as technically involved people, the gee whiz factor, what gets us up in the morning, what makes us fired up when we talk about our work over lunch, that's, that's kind of the mystery is... Um, whether your field wants to know what something does, or if you're a physical scientist, maybe more how it works, why it happens. These questions are what I'm referring to as the, as the mystery. Uh, and I think they're available to us and sometimes, not always, sometimes underutilized. I think scientists as readers naturally respond to seeing these questions and we can deploy them. They could be subheadings in your in your written work. They could be subtitles or headings on your on your slides in a talk. I think questions themselves are very compelling. And so that's what I mean by mystery versus, let's say, the whole realm of of uh, mystery novels or something. And uh, throwing no shade at that, I have a a, a great respect um, for that whole genre. But that's that sense of mystery or murder she wrote or whatnot is is not what I mean to, to porting to our scientific work, but just realizing that so many readers and members of our audience will lean forward and get excited uh, when they see questions. Like, we have no idea why this moth is doing what we observe. And then you've, you've, you've got a lot of your important audiences there if you can deploy these questions strategically and just own them, admit them, state them simply. Maybe there's not a good answer yet. Maybe your document is going to provide a partial answer by the end. And that's what you're promising your audience. Um, but this is exactly what I mean by mystery. Another important aspect of storytelling uh, is developing characters. When we tell stories, we develop characters. Then uh, we follow the journey of the character and we bring the readers along with us. You encourage uh, science communicators to adopt some of those skills. Now, my question here is uh, that in a regular story, uh, usually a human or a thing is, is, is a character. Uh, you encourage uh, science communicators to think about ideas, think about concepts, and perhaps present them as characters also, develop them as characters, and then, then uh, a journey that these ideas and these concepts can can take? Well, here's how I would answer that. And I'm, I'm still going to express great caution and even reticence of embracing a novelist uh, view of, of storytelling. I'm more interested in taking a few key tools and seeing where we can, we can deploy them as, as scientists and engineers. Um, however, I think this is important for character um, if we identify a, a, 
uh, central players, let's say players in our science story and the aims and goals and the obstacles in front of where we want this story to go or where we where we hope to make a discovery or figure something out or solve a problem, um, then this really, I think, applies. Uh, uh, a good novel, a good nonfiction historical story um, pays close attention to how many characters you have. And I think that's a really portable topic to our science communication. When I'm helping people edit things, I often say, do we really need to know about these 10 other genes right now? Do we need to know about these other molecules uh, or these other code platforms or whatever? Can, can we simplify for the reader and say, here are the two main actors or three main actors I need you, the reader, to, to hold on to for another few pages? Um, I'll say when I wrote my second book, The Apollo Chronicles, there's 420,000 souls involved in, in the 1960s efforts to get human beings to the moon and back alive. Uh, and I tried to boil that down and find five humans who functioned almost like uh, blood cells running around the space program. And so we follow these people. And don't pretend to get the whole picture, but we get a good sense of the picture of the 1960s and getting to the moon in 1969 and only uh, really have to follow and get to, to appreciate these five people. So that, that concept, I think, can be really useful in simplifying our very complicated science stories or getting across a central point that we need to get to our audience. Brendan, there are various aspects of science communication. Uh, sometimes we communicate science uh, for our scientific community. Sometimes we communicate science for a wider audience. And sometimes we communicate science specifically for policymaking. We, we talk to politicians. We talk to policymakers. Now, the tips and tricks that you discuss with, uh, with with your readers in this book that they should adopt to improve uh, their science communication, obviously, they are not equally applicable to all types of science communications. Uh, maybe for one, a storytelling approach is fine. Maybe for another, a little bit more formal approach uh, is, is, uh, is, is better. Absolutely. Um... And Vasim, um, redirect me at any point, but I'd like to go in a, in a deep dive here. Please, I'm actually looking for a deep dive now. <laughs> okay, okay. I, you know, I thought about the origin of this book as uh, me trying to uh, answer, um, someone I was helping said, is, is there a book I can go to with this guidance? And I said, oh, there's hundreds of books. I'll find you five. And I couldn't find exactly what I wanted. Not to say I've looked under every possible stone. There's so many books. I may have missed some. But anyway, I wanted to write one that I thought filled that space. But when I think back on it, there's a, 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 an origin further back. I was at the uh, Kavli Institute for Theoretical Physics several years ago as a writer in residence. And I, I became really increasingly obsessed with the following idea. Uh, <laughs> We think our brains have infinite capacity, right? And we have people thinking about how can quantum gravity work? What's going on beyond the event horizon of a black hole? What happened in the earliest uh, femtoseconds of the universe, right? We truly really 
especially I would say theoretical physicists think, well, we'll just push the brain and we have no, no sign that it's running out of real estate. It's doing great. We'll just keep going. But I, I thought to myself, should we have humility? Is this, are we sort of like shrimp trying to figure out the tides, right? <laughs> At some point, we are not unlike shrimp uh, or choose your organism. So this whole idea of brain versus scientific ambition uh, really took hold with me as I started reading about brain evolution, like what is the brain really for? And this is what's important to the book. I, I ran across an idea I found very compelling called the social brain hypothesis advocated by Oxford's Robin Dunbar and, and others. And it, this sort of infuses the book and the approach and it gets to your answer of multiple audiences and, and rolling out different tools and approaches to multiple audiences. Um, but the social brain hypothesis basically would say a driving force in our brain development and its higher functions was not just problem solving and, and sharpening tools or whatnot to find food and to procure food, but it was um, social networking and, and keeping our ever expanding larger groups of primates together. And that is a primary function of our brains. And if you follow that literature, we're not maybe that much more efficient at gathering food than all kinds of other organisms with similar, similar energetic needs. Um, but we spend a lot of time as lower primates grooming one another, as human beings doing what we call gossiping, talking about other human beings. Even in our scientific work, a lot of it was, well, who's going to referee my paper and who can I line up with on this grant proposal, et cetera. It's kind of fascinating. If you take this approach to our communication, then it becomes uh, very important to think, who am I as an author or a speaker to this specific audience? If it's a, a set of lawmakers, who am I uh, as a primate to them? If it's a set of my close colleagues, who am I uh, as an author they know or don't know? Or, or maybe if my ideas are a little contentious to them, then how do I approach it? Where do I establish common ground? Uh, where do I show them that I have them clearly in mind? And I think so that approach actually advocates a, a more personal and, and authentic communication style. And I think many people, if you talk to them informally, like, oh, I really love that talk. You know, I felt like I was having lunch with someone or, you know, something like that. There's this, this, this almost camaraderie. But I really do encourage my students when I teach science communication classes to be themselves, to ask of their writing, would I say it this way if I were at lunch with someone? You know, this is the sort of phrases like, in order to start the process in which we would never say at lunch, we would never, and we don't need phrases like in order to, for instance, I don't want to get so picky and pick on just one thing. Um, uh, but, but this kind of approach really does infuse every bit of the book and it's kind of taken over my, my thinking on it for what it's worth. And so, yes, different approaches to different audiences, just as you say, some tools are more appropriate in some places than others. But a, a bedrock belief I have now is that if I'm trying to persuade legislators, if I'm trying to persuade, let's say, adjacent colleagues in my biophysics work, they're a little more biological than I am, and I'm a little more physical, then I think um, uh, inhabiting their point of view as fellow primates 
and and their concerns and their view of who I am as a communicator will, for better or worse, be every bit as important as my data and my train of logic. And I think before, if you think the brain just evolved to build tools and problem solve, then all I need to do to present to any audience is some logic and some data. And I'll fine tune the language if it's a politician or if it's a fellow scientist and everything will be great. Well, we see ample evidence that not everything is great when we just trot out good data and good logic. There's a little more at work. And I find this whole social brain hypothesis uh, very compelling, just to, just as a living human being and watching what wakes us up at 3 a.m. is often not like, oh, what could I have done to improve that experiment? It's often like, oh, I feel really badly about that email and how it's going to be received. <laughs> so... It seems that when we are communicating with general audience, perhaps we have uh, more flexibility. We can develop our own writing style and we can use that writing style to communicate whatever we wish to communicate. But when it comes to uh, writing uh, scientific papers, writing for journals, for conferences, most of the times they have a very strict template and uh, the authors, uh, they, they have to follow that template. And sometimes that template is so rigid that it actually reaches a point that it tries to control the language and the style that you will use to to, to communicate. What's your view on that? Yes, I'm so sympathetic to what you're laying out. And and scientists could could take in some of the ide these ideas and say, well, I'm not going to get my abstract accepted at my conference if I follow some of these ideas, Brandon. And I've talked, I spoke with a group of environmental chemists once who said, I really love this, but I actually feel like if I improve my sentences, I'm going to get fewer papers accepted. Uh, I would push back a little bit, uh, just a little bit, uh, and I, I think that problem might be overstated in our scientific silos, because if you speak with editors at journals, they want downloads of the papers, they want clicks, they want eyes on these things, and I'm seeing uh, ever more flexibility in just, let's say, like, yes, you do have to put an introduction first, um, but there is more and more flexibility, and you can look through the journals and see this, just even using your subheadings to tell part of your story, right? Uh, as I say in the book, maybe instead of just writing introduction as a subheading, it's uh, open problems in arteriosclerosis research. Uh, and you've, you've set the stage. You've provided a stepping stone for the reader, and it's just a little more clear and, and, and specific and less fuzzy. I also think journal editors um, do love readability scores. There, many of them are aware of this research showing that shorter sentences with, with overall less jargon get cited more often, have higher impact factors, etc. So I don't I would predict you're not going to get many editors going back to working scientists, let's say, on research papers or grants saying, you know, these sentences really need to be longer. Uh, I need more prepositional phrases here. <laughs> I, I would submit to you that's um, not going to be happening. So I'm definitely not preaching and I don't want to sound like I'm preaching any kind of revolution. No way. We, we do have these structures and expectations, um, but we can... Uh, and, improve our sentences, uh, think carefully about where we place our questions, what our promise to the reader is, 
and think carefully again about what what would be most interesting to the readers I'm trying to reach. What are their questions and what are their what are their um, caveats that they bring? As soon as they see my title, they may have some some misgiving that they bring there, and um, owning that and ad- admitting it can build quite uh, a level of trust between the primate reader and the primate writer, for instance. And uh, staying with the same point, uh, some journals and some scientific publications, they have uh, very strict uh, guidelines about uh, the fact that can you use first person narrative or should you only be using third person narrative? And then it has huge impact that how you craft your sentences and how you actually craft your 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 text. Absolutely true. Uh, a- absolutely true. And that um, I would say, unfortunately, but it's what, what we have, you know, that will vary journal to journal. Again, I feel like I'm seeing, and it, it's field dependent, uh, but I, I do feel like I'm seeing more and more flexibility. I think studies, uh, the linguists who watch scientists communicating are seeing a little more first person. But I don't necessarily advocate trying to switch to first person. One thing I do like to uh, raise science this awareness of is the whole idea, very big in journalism, of active versus passive constructions. Um, And I think a lot of writing instruction and a lot of writers will tell you, especially journalists, a lot of fiction writers, only use active voice. And an active voice is you have a clear subject and a very clear verb, and the actor of the sentence is, is never in question. Here's what I mean. Uh, a passive construction would say data was taken, all right? So we have a subject, data, and uh, but the, the verb is a passive construction. We don't know who took the data. And a, a lot of our scientific training on, and expectation is in passive voice. It looks very objective, right? Uh, and we still are going to have to write a lot of our journal articles in this way where we, the scientists, are, are, are kind of hidden, et cetera. That's fine. But I would, I would claim uh, in an abstract, um, in the first paragraph of a grant proposal, uh, in, a, in a pitch for venture capital, let's say, if I'm an entrepreneur, really paying attention to active voice is important. Um, with a clear actor. And there are ways, and I go through many in the book, where you can rewrite these sentences and activate them a little bit. There's a lot of good um, research in rhetoric and linguistics showing that audiences do feel a greater emotional involvement with this active voice. And if that, if that means occasionally using a we, we did this, or we collected the data, we tried to understand X, um, then so be it. But there are many ways to activate sentences. Uh, interestingly, and I'm not someone to get down in the weeds uh, who's anti-passive voice. It has its place. Um, one thing I roll out in the book uh, that linguists would say, um, passive is can be a great construction and, and appropriate. Um, it also, interestingly, this, this idea of emotional distance and cooling in the passive voice of data were collected, data were analyzed, et cetera. Uh, For contentious topics, uh, it can lower the temperature. Um, 
you know, I use the example of if you've seen someone publishing work very similar to yours and they didn't cite you, you could write an email saying you should have cited my work and you center the primate versus primate and, you know, could get a defensive reaction versus, uh, you know, a passive way of saying it. it's like, oh, similar measurements were taken 10 years ago. And here's a here's a link to some articles, right? You wouldn't even have to put yourself in it. And I actually had an, an instance like this that ended very amicably, but I intentionally used that passive voice. Um, so that's a, that's a long way of going about to say, yes, we have expectations from journals and other scientific platforms for communicating our work. But I would say there's a lot of wiggle room in there for maybe using active voice for some, for some key sentences uh, making sure our sentences don't la last three lines in a column, <laughs> um, not piling up our prepositional phrases one on another. Um, there, there's ample wiggle room for making these things a little more clear and compelling. Let us uh, look at some specific examples that you use in the book uh, that we can apply to improve how we communicate science, particularly with the journal audience. And you make a very interesting point that when scientists are talking to scientists, we can use numbers, we can use large numbers, and we can understand those numbers when we are talking among ourselves. But when we are talking to general public, maybe we should use different type of scales. We should try to use an analogy that helps them to understand that what size we are talking about. And you have two or three very good uh, analogies. You talk about uh, uh, the size of the atom versus the size of uh, its uh, nucleus. So give us one or two examples of how we can uh, use analogies to make it easier for our audience to understand what we are trying to communicate when we are talking about numbers and data and scale. Great. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And so, of course, as you say, this is not something to worry about um, if we're just talking among um, people who are, are working in our same area, our same silo, etc. Although, it doesn't necessarily hurt. If we have one or two key recalibrations and analogies in our back pocket, I would say they never hurt. But yeah, especially, um, uh, I remember teaching, starting my teaching career some 25 years ago, and I think it's really amazing to tell students that um, the nucleus of an atom is, is but um, well, about one ten thousandth the overall size of the atom itself, and it's just filled with all this empty space, right? And I, I had an analogy of um, sort of a pea sitting at, the, sitting at the 50 yard line of a high school football stadium, you know, just to get an idea of all the empty space inside the atom getting down to its, its little hard nucleus of neutrons and protons and actual, actually quarks. But uh, even there, I've started to think bringing something as close as you can to someone's home or their daily awareness is more effective than a stadium or, or in science journalism in the United States, we're always comparing things to the size of this one state, Rhode Island. <laughs> if you live on the West Coast like I do, that's not super effective. Um, so my favorite now, and I'm just trying to, uh, scientists might be very comfortable with the, with the number 10 to the fifth, one, sorry, one part in 100,000. I said one part in 10,000, my apologies. So. Um, 
the at atomic radius is uh, 100,000 times the, the size of the average nucleus. Okay, so how can we convey that in a home? And I worked with those numbers and roughly say that's, that's like a, a poppy seed from a poppy seed muffin um, sitting right at the top of the stairs in a, in a two-story house, sitting there right in the middle. And the two-story house is the atom and the poppy seed is roughly the, the nucleus. And I think that helps students really see all that empty space inside all the matter composing them and, and around them. So I am into these recalibrations and I, I base a lot of that chapter on numbers on some great cognitive science work, um, looking at what we call now the number sense, the, the brain's ability and the ways in which it processes numbers. And it has to be a sort of borrowed, it has to borrow existing machinery inside the brain because uh, the current idea is we didn't evolve to to do a lot of mathematics or, or to um, concoct and talk about big numbers. This is a fascinating example that you just gave about the size of um, uh, atom and how we can actually think that uh, how much space is there. You have nucleus and then there is space and then there is the entire structure of uh, atom. Uh, give us a couple of more examples from the book where you feel that these analogies can make your message more clear uh, to the audience. Sure. Well, one, unfortunately, um, that's of increasing interest uh, in, in North America, let's say, um, is we see a lot of reporting with lots of data and big numbers on wildfires. And we use, and science journalists, bless them, uh, and reporters of all kinds are stuck with a unit of an acre. <laughs> And uh, not many people here, unless they have a deep agricultural background, really understand what an, what an acre is. Uh, and so we'll get reports on, wow, this wildfire is now 267,300 acres and it's 17% contained. And we just hear these all the time. And again, maybe they'll compare that to the size of Rhode Island, <laughs> which is also completely abstract to uh, most of the audience. So I worked with my students. We had a whole week where we worked on recalibrating these things. And I said, you got to bring it home, bring it into someone's home where they can see this. And let's look at a fire in California and recalibrate it. And I said, what if it was a million acre wildfire? And um, so a lot of students worked hard. Well, here's how I would describe an acre. It's 16 tennis courts. And I said, that's, that's great. People can kind of see 16 tennis courts. And, and get the idea of an acre. But then a million acres is 16 million tennis courts, and that's not helping us. So we got to get these small household-type numbers if we want to make an impression on the average, especially scientifically untrained human brain. Studies show this over and over. So we eventually came up with the idea of a, of a couch, and a, many couches have three cushions. And what we liked about that is... Um, for the state of California, which has, has had many wildfires. State of California, one third of California is roughly forested, as I understand it. I'm not an, an expert in the state's um, geography, but if roughly one third of the state of California is forested, um, then that's one of three couch cushions. So let's look at the couch cushion there and scale a million acres to the total acreage of forests. And we came up with something uh, about like a, um, a small tea saucer, right? So if there was a burn on a couch, 
Then we have an analogy of the wildfire. Well, that's a substantial burn on that couch cushion. You would want to turn it over or buy a new couch cushion. <laughs> it's a, it's it's quite a scar. And um, we felt like we could so-called bring it home, bring it into the living room and explain it to someone instead of hitting the human brain with a number, with all these digits and a unit they don't recognize like acres. Um, so so that's the, the, the kind of thing we're trying. And some... Some scientific numbers we need are just not worth the trouble, and they're going to be impossible to recalibrate. Uh, one example from a very popular radio program that I that I love was trying to talk about the size of of um, uh, an asteroid impact in terms of how many nuclear weapons it would it would equal on impact, and they had this megatons of TNT, and they worked at it for what felt like several minutes, and it's just really, really hard <laughs> to, to bring that, to bring that home. And sometimes, sometimes we can't get around using these enormous figures and comparisons. And uh, there is another example that I think you have used in one of your presentations that if we want to move earth from its existing orbit, and we want to bring it to a different place as the sun becomes more and more unstable. Right. Uh, do you yes. remember that? I love that. And that's, that's in, in no way can I take credit for that. Um, I think the author's name uh, is, um, I'm probably not pronouncing it right, I've not met them, is Sarati. Um, but uh, uh, was writing an, an article for the lay public about what would it take to move Earth away from the sun when the sun becomes uh, a red giant, which is coming in our our distant future, and believe it or not, people study that. How could we nudge Earth to an orbit more like Mars's? And your first calculation, let's say if we use rockets and use the little momentum kick of each rocket to nudge the Earth outward, and we just shoot many, many rockets towards the sun, and like a kid on ice skates throwing little rocks, we start sliding in the other direction away from the sun. Great. Okay, we would normally say, well, we need um, 10 to the... 20 kilograms worth of material or whatever, I don't have the right number to do that. And that is a number that bounces off most every human brain. But this clever author, um, and I will email you the, the actual uh, author's name, it's important. It used proportions and proportions and percentages are a little more comfortable for the human brain on average. And he, he computed the mass as a percentage of the Earth itself and showed that we would have to use some ridiculous percentage of the Earth's mass in this project so that we would have this little shell of 15% of Earth remaining <laughs> in Mars orbit. And instead of a huge number in scientific notation, it really helped drive home that we're not going to be able to move the Earth with rockets. That's not, that's not going to work. One thing uh, that I found very interesting when I was reading your book that now that you engage with researchers coming from various disciplines, you have noticed, and correct me if I'm wrong, you have noticed that different disciplines have slightly different style of writing their research publications and writing uh, their papers. And, and in, in, in one discipline, if something is uh, frowned upon, maybe other discipline is actually doing that without any problem. Uh, am I correct in making this observation? Um, yes, I think so. And especially when we give talks in our silos, there has been some real divergent 
evolution. Uh, and just to paint with with broad, overly simple strokes. But I, I go over talks with my students and uh, these lovely classes of like seven or eight different types of science majors coming together and, and studying how we communicate science. But painting with broad strokes, biologists are much more likely to start a talk very personally. Here are pictures of my lab members. Um, here's a picture of me when I started my a fascination with this topic, and they may start a talk with their their story of entry into it. Here's how I got involved. Here's what compelled me. Why I couldn't get this this frog or this gene out of my mind. I couldn't stop thinking about it. Whereas um, for a lot of the more physical sciences, like I say, a, a theoretical physicist would be very unlikely to share the personal story or pictures of colleagues up front. Um, they may have a list of names of collaborators, and they would be less likely to uh, share their, their origin in the work uh, just as, a, as an interested human being. That's very, very interesting. They'd also be more likely to have just black and white slides. Let's pare it down. Let's get right into the physics. The physics should interest any of you uh, automatically because it's fascinating. I don't need to motivate that. I just <laughs> go forward. Um, so these silo to silo differences are, are very important. Uh, and they do vary journal to journal, of course. I don't want to go on too much about it, but I, there are field to field differences now in publishing and the extent of the story one has to have together and, and reams and reams of supplemental data and figures, etc., really is starting to vary a lot uh, field to field. Um, and I think there's some outcry about that in, in certain corners. But I, I want to emphasize this is just one part of my intended audience uh, with the book, because I'm really hoping to reach a lot of non-academics who are out working in the tech sector or um, engineers certainly have to do a lot of communicating, um, et cetera. But they, they do run into their own field to field differences as well. So we have a whole chapter. There was a, an early um, reviewer of the book for the MIT press said, you know, we really need a chapter on, um, discipline to discipline differences. Uh, and so I really, um, put some thought into that, even talked to linguists who study the differences between biology papers and physics papers and things like that. And, uh, engineers communication life cycle versus that of a academic scientist. So I, I've sprinkled some of that, um, in, and there, there really are substantial differences. So why would anyone care about field-to-field -field differences? Um, well, a lot of us like to try interdisciplinary pursuits, uh, and I, I don't want to overemphasize my own misadventures, but certainly when I um, stepped into uh, an adjacent discipline, um, I underrated the extent to which different disciplines hold different questions as sacred. Um, I was very interested in a mechanism like how does this sensory organ have this amazing response? And I blundered into a field where the central interest was, what does the organism use this organ for? What is it for? And I was very interested in, in how is it doing this, this um, ancillary, non-central thing in its, in its functioning. So uh, an, an awareness of, again, that's just studying audience. 
you know, trying to get in the shoes of who you're communicating with and what they what they hold sacred and telling them that you've learned that uh, can be so, so helpful no matter what we're doing. Brendan, uh, about 40 years ago, science communication was a a fascinating and exciting thing. You, 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 you would enjoy that. And then maybe 20 years ago, we started using science communication to encourage young people to get involved in science. And we still do that. But uh, for past six, seven years, we are mm-hmm. observing polarization in various societies. Uh, and uh, when COVID arrived, we observed that that polarization has uh, has an impact uh, that how we were responding to the COVID crisis in, in various countries and various places. My question now is that at this moment in time, science communication is not just a leisure activity or let's kind of, mm-hmm. I'll do a bit of science communication. I'm just taking some time off. It's a responsibility the way there is polarization, the way uh, people are rejecting science bluntly, the way people are rejecting evidence, how should science communication evolve? How should science communication change now to tackle these bigger, real and present challenges? Yeah, there could be uh, no bigger and more important question. Um, so I did include in the book, um, we have a chapter on basically communicating bad news, how, how, especially let's say talking to the public and we talk about communicating at different scales. How do you, how do you bring unwelcome news to an audience or things, you know, they don't want to hear or might be skeptical of, and it could be like, um, we think you, you should, uh, take the following steps in a pandemic. <laughs> uh, we think you may want to burn a little less oil or, or um, uh, or such things. And here again, I do think the social brain helps in understanding that saying, Hey, here's why I want you to take the following precautions because look at this experimental data is only going to get us so far. Um, people, if, if you, if you view us as a bunch of apes, which I think isn't a bad first approximation, then people are saying, well, my local group believes X and we need to keep the local group together. Um, so why would you have me deviate from that? Um, so again, s- having as much sympathy and compassion for our audiences, even when we find it very frustrating, uh, in my personal settings, that's, that's one of the only ways forward. Or we've, we've seen the limitations of, Hey, look at my data. Um, I think we're running up against the limitations of that in, in influencing um, policy and, and behavior and, and legislation, et cetera. So um, I don't want to hit that piano note too hard. Apologies if I am. But I, I, I do think thinking of our primate brain and embracing that a little more. And, and, and some thinkers, I, I quote a noted philosopher of scientists in the book who's just saying, you know, showing the public the process of science can actually help build trust. Like here, here's how our group of primates is functioning. I'm not just cudgeling you with data and graphs that you may or may not understand. Here's how we work. Here's how we check one another. Here's how we question one another. Here's the slow kind of 
grimy process of peer review, just sort of opening up the doors to some of our towers um, can make process too. If we're trying to talk to apes in a different tree from ours and say, like, here, here's why we're spreading this news to your tree. Yeah, I, that's not, I find that answer unsatisfying, to be honest. And I'm very, very concerned. Um, I am proud in the book that at least looking at the United States, I don't name any political parties, but I just give statistics of how, how it's diverging. One group is maybe too accepting of scientific data when they read it, and one group is now very skeptical of whatever they hear out of the scientific community. So um, uh, both of those, I think, have a, a certain negative aspect, and the gap is is super concerning. And I haven't offered any silver bullets, but I think I do think scientists get really frustrated with saying, "Well, I showed the logic. I showed the only logical path. Why why don't people embrace that?" And that might not be considering the whole. The whole way our uh, what our brain has evolved to do is keep groups of us united um, versus just following logic. Yeah. Staying with this point that how you communicate bad news or how you communicate that something can go wrong, a lot of tips that you have provided in this book, you have developed them through your own experience. Your wife was in hospital and was going through a treatment. And then as you were engaging and communicating with doctors, perhaps you noticed few things that things could have been done better or could be done better. And, and communication can be improved. First of all, this decision of including such a serious personal experience in the book is a massive decision. Talk mm. to us about that. That was a massive decision. And it was one I made very carefully with my wife, Dana who did, uh, while this book was in its infancy, receive a very serious cancer diagnosis. And, and while I was writing the book, uh, um, Dana was going through all sorts of treatments. And I was doing a little caretaking when she needed it. Um, but she was a great patient. It was very easy. But um, yeah, why include that? Well, I, I have to, to blame a little bit uh, an editor in person I, I consider a, a, a friend now at the MIT press early on said, you know, I think this book could be something more impactful if you made it more personal. I originally had written a version or pitched a version of the book that was very stripped down, just a how-to manual. And this person said, well, you've worn a lot of different hats. You've been a dean, you've been a fundraiser and done these different things, Brandon, your stories might really enliven the text. And here's the, the thing, Vasim. here's the thing I, I thought, if my point is to, our best communication happens when we're an authentic, open uh, communicator, uh, speaking in a compassionate way to an audience of fellow primates, then, then being very open about uh, who I am or what I think and what I've experienced might be very authentic to the text. Um, so I wasn't that comfortable starting down that road. Um, but in, in especially in the communicating bad news, bad technical news, like we heard all kinds of biological words neither of us recognized. And, and Dana is a biologist, a research biologist. So, uh, so certainly going on that medical road was, um, was uh, interesting and challenging in terms of communication. Uh, so we did make that decision. And, and by the way, she's in, in remission now. Kind of the whole process of putting the book together has fo followed that soup to nuts. Um, 
but yeah, so so a chapter on communicating bad news was not so much about medicine, but it made me study the medical field because they actually have more research into how do you take a, uh, an unwelcome message to another human being. Um, there's a lot more of, of that available than uh, how, um, how do you take a... Um, a negative outcome at a at a tech startup to the CEO or something. There's not a lot of research on that, but I'm hoping that some general principles from one field can apply to to others. But it's very interesting the way medicine has studied and is starting to really train people. A lot of medical programs incorporate this now. You know, the so-called bedside manner. How do you talk to a patient um, with some with some bad news? And I'll save some of the details of that for the book. Um, but I, I thought it was it was very interesting. And by the way, we had overall great communication and and the health journey in our household that I've described. Um, a lot of a lot of compassionate but very clear communicating. A lot of making sure we understood some key points before we left an office or a medical visit or a hospital. Um, so it felt very very fortunate in in our own experience. Brendan, we are discussing your book, Sharing Our Science, How to Write and Speak STEM. We have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in this book. Obviously, there is much more in the book. However, is there anything else that you think we should touch upon before we close this discussion? I think I would just like to say the, the following. I'm really glad our conversation has included, oh, there are these limitations or these journals might not like this idea, et cetera. It's, a lot of that is very true. But, um, you know, I'm offering up food for thought and the, the one central thought maybe we haven't talked about that would do every technologist, scientist, engineer a lot of good is to start reading and receiving bits of technical communication uh, a little bit as a writer or an author. And what I mean is not just looking for the the content. What I mean is not just looking at the communication, the, the, the writing or the presented talk for its content, but also seeing it as a piece of communication. And once you flip that switch and start saying, oh, they started with a central question or, oh, that was a very rough beginning and I had to motivate myself to listen. Once you start uh, looking at these pieces of communication as someone who might want to build one, uh, your toolkit will expand. You'll find your own preferences um, and see things that work and, and don't work as well for you, etc. Professor Brendan Brown, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Uh, I've really enjoyed our conversation and thank you for all the work you're doing with Bridging the Gaps. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.